Welcome to Remember, a podcast about building community. I'm Carla Salter. Hello and welcome everyone. My guest for today's show is Elmer Dixon, one of the founding members of the Seattle chapter of the Black Panther Party. Next month marks the 50th anniversary of the Seattle Panthers, so I was incredibly honored to have the chance to interview Mr. Dixon about the party's work in the community and as a community, and about how his experience as a Black Panther continues to inform his life today. There are a lot of misconceptions about the Black Panthers, but more than that, not enough is known about their remarkable work. In the face of unrelenting opposition and interference, the organization, which started in Oakland in 1966 and then spread to branches all over the United States and the world, ran a newspaper, a breakfast program for school children, a prison tutoring program, an accredited school, an extermination service, free health clinics, and much more. The Panthers understood that revolution happens when you organize, and you organize by meeting people where they are and addressing their immediate needs. This is an important lesson that's incredibly relevant right now. There's a multi-day 50th anniversary celebration being planned for the final weekend in April. I'll link to the website in the show notes. And for those who would like to learn more about the history of the Black Panther Party in Seattle, I highly recommend My People Are Rising, a memoir by Elmer's brother, Aaron Dixon, who was the chapter chair. And now, my conversation with Elmer Dixon. Welcome, Mr. Dixon. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. What does community mean to you? Well, I think uh, community means a number of things. I think it's, you know, family. I like to start with family. I think that families together make up a community. And my own growing up experience was that the, the block or the neighborhood that we grew up in, there were lots of families. And you know, families provide, you know, the basis of kind of a safe zone um, because other parents uh, in the community would look out for, you know, us or our parents would look out for their kids, etc. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I think it starts with family. And then it's it's kind of the, the makeup, you know, of a community. You know, are there businesses or um, establishments that also recognize, you know, who you are and you know, work to make one themselves fit in, and also make uh, you feel a part of, of of their community. You know, we grew up in a uh, in Madrona, <clears throat> where the uh, neighborhood grocery store was a an IGA. People knew the owner. I ended up working for him, and there was a small grocery store that was owned and operated by a Chinese family. I don't know if they were first or second generation. But, um, you know, everybody knew them by their first name, Joe and May. That was part of the community, you know, all of the the small businesses. There was a pharmacy where we knew their names, the uh, the small restaurants that were in the area or the bakery or the um, the laundromat. <clears throat> Those were all part of uh, part of community. Another important piece of community is is maintaining some sense of culture, um, which gives people identity, especially kids growing up. You know, as as we reach that uh, critical age of 
12, 13, 14 years old, and we're trying to figure out who we are. Community helps build that. So it's all of those things, I think, that, that uh, make up community. Thank you. So for, for people who don't know this history, can you give us just a brief summary of who the Black Panthers were and what they stood for? The, the Black Panther Party rose out of the, the ashes of rebellions across the country uh, in Watts, in Detroit, in New Jersey, on the heels of the Civil Rights Movement, which to many people felt like it had failed, even though, you know, the, 19, the passing of the 1965 Civil Rights Act, you know, there was still a very long way for black and poor and oppressed people to go. And so it rose out of the ashes of those rebellions uh, that ironically happened during the same time or year that the 65 Civil Rights Act passed, uh, the murder of, uh, the assassination of uh, Malcolm X, um, the murder of Medgar Evers. You know, while these things continue to happen in the, the midst of the civil rights movement, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, you know, the, the, the Black Panther Party grew out of uh, those ashes and out of that, that pain and out of that sorrow and was founded by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale in uh, October of 1966. It was called initially the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense because there, there was a need to defend the community against attack, but it had really also, the purpose was to build a, a, a political party that represented the needs of black people so that black people could have a voice and speak for themselves as we had no voice. And those were the initial intentions of Healy and Bobby. It was important for us in those early years to openly carry weapons to demonstrate that we had the right, based on the Constitution of the United States and the Second Amendment, to defend ourselves and to bear arms. That also was misconstrued by many people who thought we were their personal defense force. But we really were a revolutionary vanguard that, that uh, wanted the, the government to change or to overthrow, so to speak, the government, uh, which is also uh, talked about in the, um, the Declaration of Independence that says that when you know, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are not guaranteed or protected by uh, those that are in power, that it is the, the right of the people to overthrow such government. And so we based our struggle within what the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence had, had guaranteed us. So we were a revolutionary movement uh, that was seeking to change the dynamics of this country. Uh, and that was all built on the 10-point uh, program and platform of the Black Panther Party. A few of the things that are in the 10-point program uh, we want to uh, we want to be able to control our own destiny, which is which is number one of the program. Uh, we want to be able to um, end police violence. Um, that was we want an end to the murder of innocent black people in, in the black community. We wanted uh, all black men and women held in federal, state, county, city prisons and jails to be released because they had not had a fair trial based on the Constitution of the United States. Which also then the next point was we want when people black people are brought to trial to be tried by a jury of their peer group. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also uh, a, a right and a guarantee. What we wanted uh, the end to the robbery of what we called uh, capitalists within our community, um, because they were not, you know, giving back and supporting the community. We wanted uh, education that taught us our true nature, 
uh, taught us the, the true nature of our society, that also represented our own cultural, you know, background and understanding in our existence in this world. It, you know, healthcare and those other things were part of this overall. Uh, I think number ten, we want land, bread, housing, education, justice, and peace, um, and the United Nations plebiscite which meant that we wanted to be able to address the United Nations about the, the fate of what we referred to as the black colony within America because we wanted to have our you know, self-determination. I think it was uh, we wanted all black men and women to be exempt from military service, and this was a direct focus on the Vietnam War, which was an unjust war, and history has proven that out. And it's also proven that... that Black men uh, were uh, disproportionately uh, taken out of their communities through the draft to serve in in Vietnam, uh, and it's you know most of our our our, our ten point program was modified some years later to include all oppressed people because we recognized that it wasn't just blacks that were the victims of these uh, of the circumstances in the United States, but you know, poor whites, poor Latinos, uh, anyone who was was less than in in this society uh, is oppressed, and you know that continues today. So, it, the ten point program had a had a very strong relevance to what was going on in the communities across the United States and around the globe, uh, and that was the foundation of all of our programs and the efforts that we uh, you know we put in action. When and how did you become aware of the organization in Oakland? And what motivated you to start a chapter in Seattle? I mentioned identity earlier. And for me, as a 16, 17-year-old, you know, trying to develop my identity in terms of who I was and what I stood for, you know, I, I think I had personally, I had a, 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 an inclination to stand up for people that were being abused or, um, uh, you know, made fun of. Um, and I think that was true for, for all of um, my family members because of the way that our parents raised us. Um, and, of course, growing up with the, the civil rights movement as a backdrop, um, you know, I don't know how you could not be aware of what was happening around the country. You know, the uh, Bloody Sunday was on the TV set. The, the bombing of the 16th Street, 16th Street Baptist Church, you know, the, the, the rebellions and... and uh, in Watts and uh, Detroit, it, it was like the the mood of the country was, you know, do something. Something has to be done. And so, as as I was developing this identity, we had become aware. Uh, in fact, I think somehow my brother Aaron had gotten a hold of a Black Panther paper, and um, we had talked about it. I remember, you know, my own personal kind of awakening, if you will. Um, and, and you have to understand the you know how the country was shifting at that time. You know, growing up on a playground in the early '60s, if someone called you black, that was like a uh, an insult and uh, fighting words because there was such a negative connotation on black. And the the Black and I'm Proud movement started to emerge in the mid-60s. You know, James Brown, of course, his famous song, I'm Black and I'm Proud, somewhere in 65, uh, had, had started to come out. And, and, and again, you know, I'm, I'm at a point, my brother's at a point where we're developing this identity. And then Stokely Carmichael comes to town in 67, and we go down to hear his, his, uh, his speech, and he, he talks about that. He talks about the, the fact that 
that the you know black people don't love themselves because they've been programmed to hate anything black and talked about you know devil's food cake is, is black and angel food cake is white and he, and the the bad cowboy always wears you know black dirty uniforms and rides a, a black horse and the good cowboy is always on a white horse and you know white shiny white outfit with a 10 gallon hat and rides a white horse by the name of trigger you know those mm-hmm. kind of analogies and you know I, I, it it didn't dawn on me right away but as as i thought about things later on it it, it hit me and inspired me to to want to stand up and and so we ended up um, becoming uh, members of SNCC, his organization, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I started my, my, my senior year in high school as a member of SNCC. And so the Black Panther Party was kind of in the backdrop because we had read these, we had seen these, 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 these newspapers and we were saying, man, who are these cats? And, and the Black Panther Party was not, at that point, a national organization. It was a local organization in Oakland, California. In fact, we were the second chapter outside of Oakland in California and the first chapter outside of the the state of California in Seattle in April of 1968. And that came about after we had traveled to Oakland, actually we had traveled to uh, San Francisco to attend the West Coast Conference of Black Student Unions. I and my, my buddies who were my buddies in SNCC, you know, started the first High school black student union on the west coast at Garfield High School, and then uh, and then we were called to Franklin because of some things that were occurring there, and helped those students you know get established and start a, a black student union at Franklin, which led to that we were on our way or down to San Francisco to attend this uh, conference. The keynote speaker at the conference uh, was Bobby Seal, and this was days after the first member of the Black Panther Party, the first member to join, and the first member to get to be murdered by police, little Bobby Hutton, had been shot days, two days uh, before or after um, Martin Luther King. If Martin Luther King was assassinated April 4th, I think, little Bobby was, was murdered April 6th. I may have those dates mixed up. And so he was speaking about the assassination of little Bobby, and he was mad. And his speech was fiery. And he was talking about uh, the struggle till death and blood running in the streets until we achieved freedom. And you could almost see the line drawn in the sand uh, between those that were what we call armchair revolutionaries or um, intellectual revolutionaries and those that were ready to go out on the street and die. And that was my brother and I and four or five six other people that stepped on that side of the line and approached you know, Bobby and said, we want to start a chapter of the Black Panther Party. That's where it began. That's where, you know, it, 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 was, it was attending uh, the funeral the next day of little Bobby, who, who, who Bob, uh, Bobby Seale had invited us over to Oakland to attend his funeral. And, you know, we saw this massive uh, crowds of, of black people in leather jackets and berets and and the church, when we got inside, was lined with uh, panthers with uh, shotguns and bandoleros across their chest. And I remember thinking they looked like a black army. And I remember seeing little Bobby lying in his coffin in his panther uniform. And the coffin was draped in a panther flag. And he was 17. I was 17. And I was thinking that could be me laying there. Yeah. And it was, it, was, it was at that point that I was ready to die. Aaron, the rest of us who had 
said we want to start this chapter, it was that was the, the, the there was no turning back at that point for us. Um, so that's how that came about. A lot of people know about the Black Panther Party for self defense. They remember the iconic images with the guns and on the steps of Olympia of the Capitol in Olympia. But what I found really compelling when I learned about the Black Panther Party was the the part the ways the party worked to build and take care of the community. So can you talk a little bit about some of the programs that the Black Panther Party implemented, either locally here in Seattle or in Oakland or in another chapter? Yeah, I, you know, I think that that understanding why the Black Panther Party initiated these programs is critical to understanding how we organized in the community. We just didn't one day come up and say, you know, we need some programs. The programs were part of the overall strategy of community organizing. We we knew that that you know an armed or protracted struggle was not going to happen unless we won the hearts and minds of the people. And we also knew that a an, an armed struggle, an armed fight, was not going to go over well, and it was one that was probably impossible to win uh, facing you know overwhelming odds. It, it was going to require building a revolutionary movement. You know, and we used to we had we were required to read uh, two hours a day. We had political education classes, and one of the foundations of that those uh, political education education classes was understanding how other revolutions succeeded around the the world. Um, and one of those, of course, was the uh, the people's struggle in in China, uh, which was a long protracted struggle. There were plenty of examples of fights in in Africa, South Africa, but but China was really kind of the model as we looked at it, you know, this long protracted struggle as we began to realize this is not going to be something that happens overnight. You know, we have to figure out how we're going to build this revolutionary struggle. And it was apparent that black people were suffering and other communities were suffering as well. Our focus was on the the black community and we had coalitions with other organizations uh, that were building a revolutionary movement within their own communities. But as we were building this struggle, we realized the, the community, people in the community needed relief. They needed to be able to survive. And the programs became what we called survival programs pending revolution. So it wasn't just a, you know, a program within in and of itself, uh, let's go feed some kids. But it was sustaining the community so that we could get to the point where they would want to go further and they could survive in the process. So the Children's Free Breakfast Program, of course, was the second program that we initiated because kids needed, you know, in or, you know we had to have healthy kids who could develop their minds and, and be relevant, and, and kids couldn't learn on an empty stomach. We were named uh, in 1968, the summer of 1968, by J. Edgar Hoover, the number one threat to the internal security of the United States because we were intelligent, we were armed, uh, and we were not going to take no for an answer. Um, We couldn't be bought, we couldn't be paid off, they couldn't uh, modify us, they weren't going to negotiate with us because the only thing that we would negotiate is an unconditional surrender. And so that's why, you know, we were named the number one threat to 
the, the internal security of the United States because we were a threat to the, the status quo and the power structure, not to the people, but to the power structure. And so uh, these programs were meant to build community in a sense. The very first program was the police alert patrol, which, which is what really kind of set up this us versus them in terms of the police department. You know, we weren't, um, that wasn't our mission to, you know, to challenge police. You know, people think, all right, so it was cops versus Panthers. You know, we knew that, and point number, I think it's point number six uh, of the Black Panther Party 10-point program says we want to meet it into the murder of innocent black people. So the only way that we were going to assure that was was to go out and patrol cops and make sure that they weren't killing people in the street. And the only way we were going to stop them is if we were armed. One, with a, with a law book that said we had a right to, to carry an arm, we had a right to observe you carry out your, your duty, and armed with a shotgun. So that if they turned their guns on us, we were ready to defend ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so that was a very strong statement um, that we made with the police alert patrols. Uh, but that's, I think, what initially set us up in this, like, us versus them thing. And, and it really infuriated J. Edgar Hoover that we had the audacity to, you know, to stand up for our rights within our community. And then the other programs began to follow. The, the Children's Free Breakfast Program, as I mentioned. Free food banks. We had some of the early and first free food programs across the country. We did so here in Seattle. We had a, a free busing to prisons program. Family members who could not then reach them uh, because they had no transportation. Well, we wanted to make sure that they didn't lose that connection. We also added uh, a, a prison tutoring program where we took a busloads of students from the University of Washington. Um, and, in fact, the UW provided the buses uh, up to uh, uh, one of the prisons here that was close enough was Monroe, where we could tutor the inmates in there and allow them to get their GEDs so that they, they, we could reduce the recidivism rate and they could come back and, you know, have a chance to, you know, support and take care of their families. Um, you know, then, of course, we, we realized that uh, here in Seattle that uh, the CD had the second highest infant mortality rate in the state. And it was because kids, you know, young mothers, would-be mothers, did not have you know, adequate health care. So we opened our, our free medical clinic and free medical clinics opened across the country. Um, we had a free clothing program, a free shoe program. We had a free legal aid. We had a, a free senior citizens program. One chapter in, in across the country, and I think it was Winston-Salem, North Carolina, actually bought an ambulance and had a free ambulance program. Um, so we were very creative. There were some 60 programs. Another program that we, we had here in Seattle was the free pest control program and where we would go into people's homes so they could have sanitary living conditions and exterminate rats and roaches from their, from their property. We, in fact, exterminated the whole Yesler Terrace housing project. You know, I mean, these were programs that these were needs that people had. We, we also launched an effort for community control of police. We had a, 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 a strong uh, legal team that represented families when uh, someone got shot in the community. We, you know, we had uh, summer liberation schools for kids, you know, the, between the summer gaps where kids could, could learn, you know, uh, and increase their learning skills, their math skills, their, their reading skills, their writing skills, so that when they went back to school in the fall that they had a better chance of getting good grades. That evolved into the uh, Oakland Community Learning Center, which was an accredited school. Uh, 
which graduated kids at, at uh, a senior level at 16 years old because they were so advanced in learning because they were getting relevant education. These were programs that were designed to, um, to, to sustain people and move people forward and, and give people you know, dignity and identity and, and a sense of community. Two other ones were the uh, sickle cell anemia screening and high blood pressure screening. And, and important because those were, one, sickle cell anemia is a, is a disease that primarily affects uh, African-American and black people. Um, uh, hypertension, high blood pressure is also rampant within the black community. And uh, so we were focused on those two. But sickle cell anemia, you know, we brought national awareness to sickle cell anemia, a disease that was, was off the radar. People were not... Um, aware of it. Um, they weren't, there, there wasn't a, 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 any campaigns to let people know about it. And we were the ones that really brought awareness to sickle cell anemia uh, on a national level to the extent that funding eventually began to pour in for research. And here two years ago, it was announced that there was a cure for some forms of sickle cell anemia. And we have to believe that that, that was at least inspired by the efforts of the Black Panther Party back in you know, the late 1960s and into the 1970s. So to, that brings up a question for me, which is, how did you guys do all that? I mean, a, it's a group of young people who were motivated, inspired, and very bright. How did you, was it mostly party members who were running the clinics and running the programs? How did you fundraise? How did you build alliances to make all this work? We, we had a... a um, a number of mottos that we <laughs> we um, lived by, and and I, I don't know if I would call them mottos more than uh, I would call them uh, inspirational sayings. Um, one was um, "Use what you got to get what you need." I don't know where that came from, but 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 the the relevance of it was that we knew that there were resources within the community. We just need to tap. We just needed to tap those resources. Um, so, for example, um, the breakfast program. Um, a lot of the food that we got for the breakfast program and the free food programs gave, came from uh, institutions within our community, and we would go to like uh, Safeway. And when Safeway turned us down, there were two. You know, they were kind of like bookend Safeways in the CD. One on Twenty Third and. Uh, Union and the other one on 23rd and Jackson. And when they refused to give us uh, donations, uh, we were able to shut them down within two weeks. But then there were small grocery stores like the one around the corner from Safeway, which was a uh, Jack's uh, 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 Mini Mart, uh, Richland's Mini Mart. And Jack Richland was a, a, a Jewish entrepreneur who had this small store. And when I went in to ask him for uh, a donation to the breakfast program. He said, "What do you need?" You know that was that was you know the community response, because when I say community response, because he was part of the community, and so it was you know Jack, whatever you can afford to give us. Uh, there's a bakery uh, in Seattle that's that's world renowned or at least renowned across the United States called now it's called France. It was called Gay's Bakery, and uh, we we had we knew. Uh, uh, the uh, the woman that ran the uh, thrift store, Rosa, we knew her when we were like eight and nine years old um, because it was in the neighborhood that we lived in before we moved into Madrona. 
And so she knew us when we came back and said, you know, Rosa, we need some, you know, bread for the breakfast program. She said, let me ask Mr. Gay and, and certain. And then we got all of the day old bread, you know, um, uh, you know, loaves and loaves of it. Donuts, um, uh, Winchell's donuts used to give us donuts um, and, you know, their day old donuts. You know, we went to the, the community. We went to the institutions within our community and they, you know, they responded. Um, we, you know, and then, the, you know, uh, women in the community, men in the community, you know, they donated their time because they knew that we were, we were for the people. And so w mothers who had no jobs um, or had no husbands um, who were, uh, you know, living in the projects would come down and volunteer to cook. You know, people, you know, young people that were, you know, motivated by, you know, what we were doing, you know, that were high school students or soon to be college students also would come and volunteer their time. The doctors, the way we put the, 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 uh, the initial medical clinic together uh, was by going out and meeting with this doctor who used to follow the demonstrations, the anti-war the, the anti -war demonstrations down the freeway. I'm, I'm looking at I-5 here as we're talking. There was a huge uh, demonstration on I-5 back in, you know, during this, uh, you know, the peace movement back in 68, 69, you know, 30, 40,000, you know, hippies marching down the freeway. And at the back of the freeway, at the back of the, the march, uh, there was John Green, Dr. Green, you know, patching up people that got beat up or hit up on the head in the front lines, and they'd bring them back. And he would, he had that, he had his team back there, you know, taking care of them. So we went and talked to Dr. Green, and John was a, he was head of neurology at the University of Washington Hospital. Very engaged, well respected, uh, high level physician. Uh, and uh, he told us that um, if we pulled a truck up, to the back door of the UW hospital at a designated time uh, that we would have all the equipment we needed for the medical clinic, which we did, and there was all the equipment. And then he staffed the clinic with third and fourth year medical students who became doctors. They were in their you know, residencies. They were doing their residencies. And then he oversaw them. And that's how, that's how we put things together. You know, we went out there and put things together because we knew the resources were in our community. That's how we got those programs funded. Not by going to a traditional funding process, right. but by doing it on our own and, and organizing within the community. So there are some community institutions in Seattle that were started by the Black Panther Party and still exist today. I'm thinking of the one I know of is Carolyn Downs Family Medical Clinic. What are some other examples of the Black Panther Party's lasting legacy? Well, I, I, you know, I think that, that people were inspired by, you mentioned young people, you know, who made all of this happen. The, the breadth of food banks that you see in the area, you know, grew out of, of, of those Panther programs, you know, feeding programs we used to do host community dinners um, on Thanksgiving or Christmas where people had no place to, to, you know, to collaborate or celebrate and come together. And we would, we would host these events so people could come and, and, and sit down and, and do it within the community. I think you, you see a lot of those things that, that, that come out of, uh, that, that happened in the community that, that were inspired by, by the things that we did. Um, the, of course, the, the free medical clinic grew into a family medical center uh, in fact, I was leading that effort because uh, in, in 73, 74, 
We had closed the door of the clinic temporarily because we wanted to expand to a broader function. And uh, our clinic was called, was named after one of our fallen comrades who was shot, um, uh, Sidney Miller. And the plan was when we reopened, it was going to be called the Sidney Miller Family Medical Center. And the young woman who was working along with me on this project was Carolyn Downs. And she uh, unexpectedly died of uh, cervical cancer at the age of 25, right as we were getting close to opening the clinic uh, in 78. And uh, she died in 78, and so we opened the doors in 79 and named it after her. And the Carolyn Downs Family Medical Center is still running today. In fact, we are, when I say we, the, the 50th anniversary committee, we're collaborating with them right now to do a youth a health and wellness program that we've just written a grant for, and will uh, they will mon- they will actually uh, run that program and uh, may continue to run it into the future. So we're still working with them. So there's you know there's m- multiple things that we've done. You know the prison reform uh, process. You know tutoring in the prisons. You know that was inspired by programs that we initiated. The Black Prisoners Caucus grew out of. Uh, a Black Panther chapter that was actually in Walla Walla, so that prison organizers, you know, it grew out of you know work that that initially was done by some former uh, Panthers that were in prison. The uh, tutoring programs that are in the prisons, the tutoring programs that uh, continue even within the community, you know, were inspired by some of those early programs of the Black Panther Party. So there's a number of things across the country uh, here in Seattle that were influenced by uh, our work. I remember learning that the party itself, not only did the party work to build communities and neighborhoods they were a part of, but the party itself was a community, that there was, at least in Oakland, I don't know about the other chapters, people lived communally, shared chores, and they had childcare and other things. Were you a part of any of those efforts? And if so, what was that like, trying to build an intentional community? Every chapter across the country had that same communal living and uh, arrangement and setup and spirit of uh, of of communal, you know, a family of community. Uh, that was what uh, allowed us to sustain ourselves. That's what allowed us to be um, in the fight because we had that that core group. I could fly out of and 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 did. I could fly from Seattle to Washington D.C. and walk into a chapter and walk into my family. And when I when I got there. I was like any other comrade. Uh, we didn't walk around with a, uh, you know, like a, um, a, a, a badge that said I'm in, you know, I'm the leader of this chapter. Or I've at what level? I was just a panther, and uh, I, you know, was expected to pull guard duty like anybody else, and 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 welcome the the the, the opportunity to pull my, you know, three hour shift or four hour shift, whatever it was. Because we, we had 24-hour guards on our offices because we had to because they were trying to murder us in our sleep. Um, you know, I knew I had a place to lay my head. I knew I had a place where I could be safe. I knew I could get, you know, I was going to have a meal. I was subpoenaed before the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1970 and flew to D.C. Uh, and lived in the uh, state in the, uh, the, the chapter office. So that was a... a, a, a uh, it was a comradeship that was across the country. It wasn't just in central headquarters. That was, it, it, in, in any chapter you walked into, you were welcomed with open arms because you were, you were a, um, a 
member of the party who had been vetted, so to speak. You know, we had to vet people at, at some point uh, because of the the initial flow of people into the party. There were so many people coming in to try to figure out, you know, who was for real, who was, you know, to be trusted and who wasn't. The influx of agents, federal and local agents, was, you know, a constant threat. I, I didn't find out for 40 years that my one of my bodyguards was a, a federal agent. Uh, Fred Hampton, who was murdered in Chicago, his bodyguard uh, was a, a federal was a federal agent, uh, and and also was head of security for the whole Illinois State chapter. You know, so we had deep infiltration into the party, and so we had to be, you know, we tried to vet people as best as we could. You know, but back then, of course, there were no computers. You couldn't do background checks. You couldn't. Figure, you had to, you know, try to vet people within the community as best you could. And so, um, but once you were, you know, like a, uh, you know, like a trusted member within a cadre, we could go from city to city. You know, when it was a, a necessary trip, you just didn't travel from city to city. But if you had an assignment, then you were going to go, and people knew you were coming. And knew to, knew to expect you, but but everybody, all chapters had that 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 comradeship and that that communal environment that we lived in. So, how does your experience with the Black Panther Party inform your life and the work you do today? Uh, you know, uh, the the uh, I think probably the most critical part of my experience as a as a Black Panther was. Uh, you know, having principles to stand on and to stand by those principles and stick to them. And, you know, whatever, you know, you know, in whatever environment environment that you are in is to be principled in, uh, about what it is you're doing and stand on those principles. I think that's the most important thing. The You know, when I say the love of the people, that also is con- continues to be a part of who I am. And I think all Panthers, former Panthers, and and it, and it extends to wanting to make sure that you can give what you can or all of, of what you can, you know, to whatever the you know whatever the the work is that you were involved in. Respect for all oppressed people, you know, that was something that 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 I think for most Panthers, but I can speak for myself and my brother. You know, we didn't hate white people. Um, we weren't against white people, so to speak. It was against the system, and so we had a love for all people. But that was something we learned growing up. It, it was a perfect uh, merging of philosophies when we joined the Black Panther Party because the Black Panther Party did not respond with racism, and we had coalitions with people of, of all backgrounds. But in terms of how that inspires me today, as a diversity consultant for the past 30-plus uh, years, uh, it is you know my work centers around getting people to understand the the nuances of different cultures and backgrounds in order to create more and greater inclusion in their organizations and that that's you know that's inspired from both my growing up and also my panther years that that is who I am today and have been as an adult but it's those are the the primary things is is having some principles that you stand on uh, and never to go back on those principles, uh, respect for all people, and to stand up for, you know, those that are what we call uh, the wretched of the earth, the unspoken for, the uh, the downtrodden. So those those are the things that continue to inspire me today.